The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can reach him at donfox.net. He has brought with him Mitch Fox, and you can call them all at IG Private Wealth Management, 905 972 7420. Good morning to you all. Good to see uh, both Don and Mitch today. Morning, Scott. Morning, Scott. So, uh, you know, this is something that's uh, been in the news quite a bit, not only because we're coming out of a pandemic, we're in record low interest rates, but also in Hamilton, we're talking about boundary issues and expanding and, and allowing for more affordable housing because uh, people just simply can't afford it. And, Mitch, you want to start with, you know, the first time home buyer. Yeah, thanks, Scott. So this is a common discussion with lots of our clients these days is should they be saving in TFSAs, RSPs? And it comes down to a few factors, uh, also mainly your income. So if you're making over 46000 it usually makes sense to do an RSP contribution because you're in the 29% tax bracket versus if you're in the lower tax bracket, it'd be 24%. And the 47000 to 76,000 is a large tax bracket. So this will be tough to keep your income below that when you retire with CPP, OAS, as well as your RIF and LIF. So that's one factor for the TFSA versus RSP. But another one that is big with the kids is the first time home buyer program. And there are a lot of government incentives to buy a home for a first time home buyer as well. But the first time home buyer program allows up to 35,000 for a kid to be redeemed from their RSP for the use of their first time home. This is only, be, you can only use this once. So you, this is, you get one shot after your first home, that's it. Um, and if you're a couple, you can get up to 70,000 each. So, I mean, sorry, 35,000 each, 70,000 total. And this doesn't have to be paid back for 15 years. You also get one grace year. So it's roughly, it's actually around 16 years that you have to pay it back. So for this reason, putting an RSP is important as a young adult. They're not going to get this opportunity again, and that's a big reason for the kids to use it. Another reason for doing RSP contributions, you're going to get a tax refund. And what, we'll, what we recommend doing with that tax refund is putting it in your TFSA, where it can grow tax-free and also be used towards your home, uh, down payment for a home. Uh, the, tax, the TFSA contribution is not going to get a tax refund but it will create that tax-free growth. The RSP and TFSA can have similar investments. So you can have mutual funds, stocks, GICs, bonds. You can have any investment that you want in those RSP or TFSAs, but the RSP is going to get you that tax refund while the TFSA is not. The TFSA, the first year you can start using that is 18. We, We definitely recommend starting that as soon as possible as I have touched on how compound interest works in past weeks. Uh, another thing that you get when you are a first-time home buyer is a the land transfer tax. So if you buy a home over over three hundred seventy thousand dollars, you'll save four thousand dollars on the land transfer tax. So that's another benefit that you should know when you're becoming a first-time home buyer. Another thing that you should know as a first-time home buyer is that you get a $5,000 income tax credit, which is called the buyer's amount. Uh, another thing with buying a home is mortgage rates. Should This is something that's common with our 
our clients, should they be fixing their mortgage or should they go variable? Because variable is very low right now, but also so is fixed. So actually just this morning, we saw that you can get a fixed mortgage for 2.09%. And it wasn't too long ago that the lowest you could get was between three and 4%. And it doesn't seem like a big difference, 1%, but in those five years, so if you were to get a $500,000 mortgage at 2.09%, you're going to pay roughly $10,450 in interest per year. If you have a mortgage for 3.09%, it's going to be roughly $15,450 in interest per year. So so that's after tax money too, Mitch. So that's uh, like, that's that's real money. You know, so if somebody is making in that uh, 46 to 75,000 area and, you know, they make 10,000, they're losing you know, 30% to tax rent in that bracket. And so, you know, they got to make a lot more money to get that 5,000. So they basically have to earn about just in that difference of 1%, as you mentioned, that's $5,000 difference after tax. So they got to make about seven, $8,000 before tax um, for those, you know, people in that kind of income bracket. And, and that's per year too. So that's over True. five years, that's about 25,000. And I'm glad you brought that up after tax money. That's not pre-tax. So that, that's 25000 in five years. That's huge. If you put that away, uh, it's going to grow exponentially. Another reason why we like the RSP versus TFSA for, for young adults is it's it's stickier. I, my dad likes to use that term in appointments, mm-hmm. uh, especially <laughs> with young adults. If, uh, if 18-year-olds are putting away money per month, a lot of them, they'll see that balance go up. And if they see something that they want to buy, which lots of young people see commonly, they'll not to mention just older people too, but definitely if you're 18 (laughs) or 20 or 25, there's so much stuff you can get. You haven't started yet. (laughs) And plus the, I think the mindset when you're young too, is that I'm old. I mean, I'm young, sorry that I can buy, I can save money later. Uh, I I can buy this now and I'll just put that money away later. Uh, The TFSA is very accessible. There's, there's no penalties to taking it out because it's after tax money. The RSP, on the other hand, you're putting it away pre-tax. So it's it's a lot stickier in the sense that if you're gonna take it out, it, it counts as income. So it's there will be penalty, there'll be income tax to take that out versus if it's a TFSA, uh, you, it's basically like a bank account, except you can hold investments and it's gonna grow tax-free. Um, this is where our CFPs come in handy because they're not common things known to all financial planners. And I feel like it's a very common thing for, for people, clients, uh, people that we're talking to on a daily basis. They don't understand or realize that CFP isn't something that everyone in our business needs to have. It's something that everyone should seek when they're looking for financial advice because it's, it's a tough designation to get. It takes roughly three years just to get it. And that's if you pass everything first try. Uh, if you don't pass everything first try, because they run these tests about every six months. So it's going to take, it could take four or five years just to get it. If, even if you just fail once or twice, it's, it's a tough designation to get. And then after, once you finally get it, you have to keep doing 24, 25 hours per year of, of education credits just to keep it. So these are the that, type of that's people. That's a good point, Mitch. And it's uh, interesting how little, you know, you know, CFP, if you say it quick, it doesn't sound like much. Okay. Certified financial planner. I remember when I got mine going back years ago, and I know you got yours more recently, but it was literally the exact same courses in terms of the university quality courses. In fact, one of the 
textbooks was the identical textbook I had in my Bachelor of Commerce at McMaster. So yeah, these are university grade courses and they've actually made it even harder since I passed. So it's, it's certainly not gotten easier. So, you know, any listener out there, if, if you should be asking your advisor, do they have their certified financial planning designation? Because And that's just... And that's just to get a broader and more, uh, a larger scope view of what you're doing, not just focused on specific things. That's to, to cover everything, correct? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's going to cover the estate planning, the insurance, a full comprehensive financial plan yeah. versus uh, most people, they'll just focus on the investment planning. And I feel like that's, that's the most common, but it's also probably the, one of the easiest parts of our job. It's really the tax planning is where you find a good, a great advisor because they're going to gain you 2%. Mm-hmm. And lots of people are worried about 2% uh, fees on their investments, right? But if they can also get 2 to 4% just from their advisor, well, then you're gaining right there from the tax planning alone. Uh, another, And our team has four of them. We've got Jay, Gary, my dad, myself. We have four CFPs on our team. Uh, and along with that, we also have a CLU, which is Chartered Life Underwriter which really gets into the estate insurance and everything else a little more extensively. And when you're looking at these first home buyers, you know, there's so many websites and people are just scrounging, trying to find, and then what do they do? They want to go talk to their bank or bank manager. Quite often, they're not going through this kind of detail to determine which way should we go? Should I go TFSA? Should I go RSP? Should I look at the home buyers? Um, well, how many days before I buy the house can I make an RSP contribution? There's so many rules involved. I believe it is it 90 days, Mitch. It is 90 days uh, that you can that you can still get that deduction for the RSP. So you have to have it sit in your RSP for 90 days before you can take it out. Otherwise, that deduction is not going to count, and you won't you won't get that. And it's kind of nice having that tax deduction because you get a refund. And quite often, funny enough, there seems to be a few things you need to buy once you get that house. So yeah. if, you can, uh, <laughs> if you can pick up and buy some, uh, you know, uh, blinds or, or a couch or, or something, because this is your first house. There's lots of things that you need and never mind cl- um, closing costs and lawyers fees, et cetera. So um, it, it can make sense to top up this. Uh, but as Mitch said, if you're in the lower tax bracket, you do have to watch it because, you know, you're saving at, a, say, a 20% bracket and it may not do as much for you. To me, this is as valuable as an RESP. And by that, I mean that I remember very vividly being a young person starting to make money in my chosen career and then paying too much tax and, and, and meeting with a financial planner and figuring out the way around that. And then and obviously getting into RSPs and then being able to use them. Uh, in, in my case, I, I wasn't ready to buy a house. I used mine to buy a cottage property, which I still own today. And again, I think that, uh, you know, uh, RSPs are RESPs for education, and then RSPs that you can use for your retirement and then help you if you want to, to purchase a home. I, I think that's two of the most valuable things we have. Yeah, especially uh, coming out of the younger folks, as you mentioned, it does, uh, it does give you a little leg up, every leg up helps. Uh, and, and when the housing prices are where they are, and you know, like yourself, Scott, uh, just getting your foot in the market doesn't have to be uh, a home in the, in the, in town. Yeah, you, you, chose to, you chose to take a cottage, which mm-hmm. you know, what, what a great um, looking back. I'm, I'm sure you're not regretting that decision. 
<laughs> you know, and, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you, Don, uh, I can think of all of the people who I mentioned this to, and it was quite a few. I was a young person looking for advice. I think there were two people that told me that this was a great idea. One was my financial planner at the time, and the other one was a good friend who went on to become a lawyer. So the rest said, no, no, you should be buying this. And it's, I, I think I moved three or four times in different cities before even uh, purchasing a home. So uh, for me, it was the best way to go. That's for sure. Well, had I been around Scott way back there, I would have given that's you the it. same thing. There you go. There you go. We all ended up in the same place. But no, and again, you were very adamant about the RESPs. And with one kid in university right now, I don't know where we would be if we hadn't done that ahead of time. I hear that so often. It's, it's absolutely amazing how many times I do hear that, particularly about the RESPs. But yes, RSPs doesn't have to be simply for uh, retirement. They do have the options for that first home home buyer. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. DonFox.net to find out more, or you can call at 905-972-7420. That's at IG Private Wealth Management. Quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net or you can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905 972 Seven four two zero. All right, Don, you want to talk about um, borrowing for investment. I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are, are very uneasy with this until they find out the details. Well, it's, uh, you know, great point, Scott. If you look at borrowing for investment, we just finished talking about the first home buyers. Okay. Talk about borrowing for investment. If you look at your house as an investment, you are borrowing for investment purposes there. Call the mortgage. Nobody yeah. really particularly wants the mortgage, but it's kind of a necessary evil for people getting into the market. And quite frankly, they generally hold them for a while because normally your first house isn't your only house. You often upgrade. And, you know, with lines of credits, you uh, often are, you know, adding a, a porch or adding, you know, something else to the house or buying a cottage, as we just talked about with with lines of credits and things such as that. So, you know, we, we all seem to borrow for, for real estate without even thinking twice. In fact, rental properties uh, would be really boring for investment because a rental property is by, you know, by definition an investment. It's not to live in, you're, you're gonna be renting it out. Now the, uh, so boring for investment purposes is similar. You're now, instead of boring for real estate, you're boring for a basket of uh, say stocks. And it should be equities. You should not be borrowing for things that pay interest. Because first of all, you have to pay interest on a loan. So currently, the prime rate is 2.45. And normally, people are borrowing at a quarter percent above prime right now. So you can probably get your line of credit at 2.7. Okay, great interest rates, by the way. If can How long they're going to stay there? It's anybody's guess. Uh. It's still, uh, those were lowered um, once we hit this pandemic. And if they jumped... 1%, we'd just be back to where we were. And it, it seems like, you know, um, certain things about this pandemic have gone by really fast. Other things have seemed to drag on forever, it seems. And it's really got time. I don't know, some a sense of time has kind of gone. I don't know about you, Scott. I found yeah. out a few things. 
Yeah, you these, don't know what day or month it is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> things are opening up now, but all of a sudden, the new normal is this low interest rate. Yeah, and everybody thinks, oh, okay, well, it's, that's the normal two percent five year mortgages. That's just the way it is. Uh, no, I can tell you right now <laughs> that is not the case. Uh, we're a little older, uh, Scott, and and we're happy to see them at five and six percent. <clears throat> yeah, and. And certainly if they went back to three, as Mitch just outlined, that can make a sizable difference. In fact, mm -hmm. that's a 50% more interest you're paying. You're going from, in Mitch's example, 10,000 a year to 15,000. So borrowing for investment, let's say, for example, you borrowed $100,000. Now, the premise is that you borrow at, say, 2.7, and you, your investments, as long as they make more than 2.7%, you're going to be ahead of the game right? Seems very simple. And generally speaking, it's not that complicated. But if you borrowed 100,000, um, your payment per month, if you just pay interest, is $225 a month. So if, if you could get 8% growth on that, <clears throat> in 10 years, that 100,000 would grow to $216,000. What a, what a deal. Now, the kicker with this borrowing for investments is because it's just like a rental property, all the interest is tax deductible. So that 225 a month is now tax deductible. And let's say we take that money and we throw it, and let's say you're in a 50% tax bracket. I would, first of all, suggest this would be for people in higher tax brackets, okay? Because you're getting a better um, borrowing rate. Because if you're actually 2.7% and you're in a higher tax bracket, your after-tax cost of borrowing is now 1.35%. So now your investments don't, don't have to do nearly as well to be in the good. But so now we get this tax refund and you got this 1350 per year. Let's say you throw that right into the investment too. So as, a, as opposed to taking that money and, and spending it on something, we're gonna throw that extra money and put that into the investment too, because that's free money. So you have been putting your 225 away a month. And I, I did one at, 5%, I'm sorry, 8%, 5%, as well as zero. And just to show the difference on how leverage could work. Leverage is another term for an investment loan. So 5%, uh, so 216,000 is where you'd end up in 10 years at 8%. 163,000 is where you'd end up at 5%. And of course, if you got 0% rate of return over 10 years, and people say, well, that never happens. It, does, it has happened, okay? It doesn't happen often. And they happened in the U.S. It was called the lost decade. Um, generally speaking, there's never been a 0% 10-year performance return for Canadian stock market, but there's certainly been like a 1% or 2%. So just for argument's sake, I said, let's say we have another lost decade. There's zero returns. And your 100000 you've been paying interest all this time. It's only worth 100000 10 years later. Okay? So therefore, um, there'd be no growth. So... If you take the tax refund in each case, you'd end up with uh, um, thirteen thousand five hundred. Sorry, thirteen hundred and fifty dollars a year. At 8%, you'd end up with nineteen five. At 5%, you'd end up with seventeen thousand. And at zero percent, you just simply would get. It's like putting it in the bank, really. Which again, we <laughs> we talked on our last show about, and you'd end up with simply the principal thirteen thousand five hundred dollars ten years later. Let's say we just say. We're going to just sell everything right now and see how we're doing. Well, if you sold everything, now you have a capital gain. 
by the way, that's a good thing. Okay. We do like to pay tax on gains. That means we've made money. And so your, your $216,000 is what your portfolio would be worth at 8%. Well, you got to pay back the loan. So you have $116,000 profit. You have to give in a capital gain only half of it's taxable. So basically you're going to pay 25% tax overall on that, on that growth you received. And so at 8%, returns, you would end up with 87,000. Um, plus, you end up your tax refund invested after tax, you end up with 18,000. And so you'd end up with $105,000. Pretty darn good. Now you we got to remember though, we did pay 225 a month. So those interest payments have to come off that. And so when you look at after tax, and after those interest payments, your net result was $78,000 in your pocket after tax. What a great deal. In fact, it is a great deal because the higher, the, the better the rate of return, the it really leverages. And, and you can look at leverage like a, a, a TD totter. You know, a tiny little work on one side makes the other side go up a lot higher. Okay, and that's where the idea of leverage is. So if you move that fulcrum, I think, think it's called the middle part, and you move it, and it really can make the other side go up a lot, lot further. So at the end of the day, your rate of return in leverage is 23%. I know you made eight, but because it's not even your money, you've used other people's money for this. So you actually, your rate of return was 23%. What a deal. Do the same thing at 5%. Not quite as good. Your net result is is now thirty six thousand after tax, after paying all the loan off, everything else, and and the net result, your five percent rate return turns out to be just over five percent, five point six percent. Now, of course, if you end up with a zero percent return over a, over a decade, you you got you invested your tax refund. And that's still at 13.5. But basically, you had to make all those interest payments all, those, all that time. And you had no growth. You know, psychologically, that is a kick in the shins. Okay. Yeah. You're making payments on something that isn't growing. You say, mm-hmm. I could have done better in a bank account. Literally, you could have. So you end up in a loss position. You actually end up losing 13500 because you've borrowed money for something that did not go up in value. And so you think, okay, what, what's the alternative? And I know, Scott, we've talked about this many times. Well, we could just add monthly. Mm-hmm. And simply, t- we call that dollar averaging. So if you simply said, I'm going to take that 225 loan payment, and I'm going to invest it at 8% every month. And your returns were 8%. You would end up with $41,000 after 10 years. You'd have to, you have to pay some income tax on that growth again, a good thing. And so at the end of the day, after tax, you end up with $37,500. Well, I don't know about you, but I would far rather have the 78,000 leveraging versus the um, 37,500. So there's a $40,000 difference between leveraging and simply adding monthly to an investment earning 8% in this example. Now, that's all great. And you know what? The idea of leverage, like I said, it really enhances the growth when things are good, but it really hurts things when it's down. Okay. It's like a double-edged sword. 
when things are going great, everybody says, oh, I wish I borrowed a million dollars, put it in. Yeah. When things are going poorly, they think, oh my God, what a terrible thing. I wish I never did that. So at 5% returns, in this example, there was only a $3,000 difference. Even though you put yourself on the line for this extra risk, you really made no extra return on this. And at 0%, if you end up having that lost decade, you actually would have made, you would have even just throwing money in a bank account, 225 a month, you would have ended up with $27,000. And of course, in the leverage situation, you actually had negative 13,500. So there's a difference of $40,000 if you happen to have a bad return. So on one end of the scale at 8%, you're saying, this is fantastic. I'm up 40,500. On the other end of the scale, if you have a poor return at 0% return, you end up negative 40,000 difference by simply adding monthly. So one solution might be, okay, leverage isn't the end all be all. And it does enhance risk and, and enhance re, and return. It, it, it adds volatility to your overall um, investment portfolio. So there's benefits. The benefits of leverage is that, like I mentioned, it increases returns in high years. Another benefit, people never miss a payment. If you give uh -huh. a person a payment, okay, if it's a payment on an investment loan or a car payment or a mortgage payment, they never miss a beat. Mm -hmm. It's like having the bank sitting there looking over you saying, hey, if you miss this payment, we're coming and getting you. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's a psychologically, it's, that works out well. Um, the interest is tax deductible. Okay. Um, albeit, it's, it far more benefits the people in the higher tax brackets. So I don't like to see personally people earning less than about a hundred thousand a year looking at investment loans, because I use in this example the highest tax, uh, not the highest, a uh, fifty percent tax bracket. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it it enhances the return even more. The other nice thing about uh, investment loans, it creates non-registered investments at the end of the day. Um, what I mean by that, you've now got a pile of money. This isn't in an RSP. This money is sitting here and just money. You can do whatever you want with it. If you if you added that money to the RSP, well, like, as Mitch said, it's sticky. It's stuck in this RSP yeah. and you can't get to it. And where this, you have some choices now. You can take this money out of the non-registered and say, you know what? I'm going to make a big lump sum payment into my RSP. Or I'm going to move all this money now into my tax-free savings account and let all the future growth continue. Now, the disadvantages of a um, investment loan during uh, it really hurts returns in in bad years because you're still making a payment as I mentioned even though you're not making money if you lose a job you still have to make a payment yeah okay that's a big one what's your job security like can you you really want to stress test the idea of, of having an investment loan uh, because it is a loan the bank is as uh is sitting there with owing money and the security or the, the collateral is the investments themselves. Um, like I mentioned before, there's less advantage if you're in a lower tax bracket. And uh, it you cannot borrow for investments within a TFSA. Okay, you have to, it only works for non-registered investments. So you can't borrow 100,000 and say, I'm gonna, I'm actually 75,500 would be the limit for your tax-free savings account. I'm just going to borrow the money and throw it in the TFSA 
And I, you know, I listen to Don and I can, I can, I can write off that interest. Well, you cannot write off the interest for a registered investment and a tax-free savings account is one of those. So the advantage of adding monthly, it's dollar cost averaging. And this is a big advantage. You know, when you saw that pandemic and the market went down dramatically and those people adding every month during that time, they got to buy a lot of cheap shares. Yeah. You know, think about it at the gas pumps. No, mind you, nobody was driving at the time. But had you been able to drive, um, and and gas was seven seventy cents a liter versus a hundred and a dollar seventy a liter, um, yeah, you, people would. Lo- I'm going to load up on gas or bread or what have you. If you only had a great big tank in your backyard, you could have filled up during the pandemic. I'm sure there's a whole lot of people thinking that right now. <laughs> um, so it's also easy to increase. So if I want to increase the month I'm paying every month into my investments, not a problem. Just call your financial planner, increase it. The same token, if you lose your job, you can decrease it. Very flexible. Uh, You can move the funds to a TFSA or an RSP at will, anytime you like. Uh, The disadvantages are almost the opposite of the advantages. As I mentioned, it's easy to stop. It's easy to stop a pack or pre-authorized check to your investments. And that's actually a bad thing. Sometimes people are their own worst enemies. And therefore, if it's easy to stop, ah, you know what, things are a little tight this month. I'm going to, I'm going to stop that investment program. Nice. An investment loan, you can't do that. And uh, the other side of it is it's easy to pull those, the money out. As Mitch said earlier, if it's there, uh, there's a lot of things that people are saying, I could buy this, I could buy that. So, my advice, if you're looking at an investment loan program, is do a combo. Have the benefits of a leverage, if you're in a high tax bracket, that is, and also have the advantage of, of dollar cost averaging. And the way I look at it, it's almost a win-win in that case. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. DonFox.net to find out more. And you can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to take a break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net or you can call them at IG Private Wealth Management, 905-972-7420. Mitch, you want to talk about uh, cryptocurrency. And I guess the first question for me is, what the heck is it? I mean, uh, do, you, do you have to be like uh, under 30 to understand what this is about? Uh, it's, it's definitely the age group that would know the most about it. Uh, they're also the ones that are more interested in it. But there's a lot of, I've had people call in and ask, the craziest person I had call is, should they sell a GIC for Bitcoin? And that that <laughs> yeah. was that really stuck with me because that was three years ago. And looking back at it, it would have been a good call, but also... <laughs> Uh, the GIC is guaranteed and Bitcoin is definitely far from guaranteed. Uh, a Bitcoin is a decentralized digital currency that was created in t- 2009. And it was a promise of lower transaction fees than the traditional online payment mechanisms. And unlike government issued currencies like the US dollar, any, any currency, the Canadian dollar, it's operated by a decentralized authority. 
So there really is no authority governing this. The government. And that's why, and that's why people are skeptical of this, is because nobody really knows what the back end's all about. Yeah, a little bit there, but it's also open source, so people can see anyone's wallets, anyone's transactions, mm. and there's no capability of doing shady transactions because literally every transaction is on the blockchain. Everything can be seen. So if you have a wallet, uh, you send me your wallet address. I can see the transactions that you're doing. Uh, the Bitcoin system is also done by a lot of Bitcoin mining. So that's how Bitcoin's created. And there's only a certain amount that could be mined per year. And this was a big issue over the last six, seven months. Uh, China decided to ban Bitcoin mining from their country because they said it was very, it was very, it was polluting the country, right? It was very coal-based, a lot of coal mining going on, and they banned it. So you so this, mean for the electricity to mine? Yes. It, yes, yes, so. yes. So sorry, the electricity to mine the Bitcoin because they're basically like a, a software and hardware of, of, they look like this little computers and they're just mining Bitcoin block by block and they're huge buildings. So they banned Bitcoin. They just suck electricity. These things, because they, they yeah. banned them because they were sucking too much electricity. It was because all the coal that create needed to create this electricity was polluting the country. Wow. wow. So th that was the reason that they gave. So they banned Bitcoin. And at that time, Tesla owner Elon Musk also said, okay, it's polluting the country. Uh, I'm going to also stop allowing Bitcoin payments for my Teslas because I have an electric car company. So at that time, Tesla wasn't allowing any payments for their cars anymore, even though they allowed it earlier this year. Uh, now, since then, Bitcoin's moved all of their miners into the U.S., as well as El Salvador. El Salvador decided to allow it to be their legal uh, tender. So now they accept Bitcoin for things as small as McDonald's, coffee, even paying their taxes. And my favorite thing of how they're mining this Bitcoin, it's all natural sources now. So they're actually using a volcano in El Salvador to mine their Bitcoin. All oh, of the power. Sorry, so what? the steam from the volcano, I guess, is turning the turbines to. So they're using that as their source to make electricity to help mine. Bitcoin. Correct. Yeah. Wow. So and they're trying to sell that it's environmentally sustainable. They've gone, yeah, it's gone very environmental lately. It's there's whether it's solar, wind, hydro, there's waterfalls that are now mining Bitcoin. So it's pretty, it's crazy to think that you're getting your currency from a volcano mine. <laughs> I, I think that's so cool. Wow. Wow. But the, the big questions that I get for Bitcoin is, is it a good investment? Uh, is it going to be around? How do I get exposure to it? Uh, and my answer to that is that, yeah, I think you should have some exposure to it if you're okay with massive volatility, because it's a very speculative investment and I wouldn't put much of your portfolio in it, but uh, there's companies such as Tesla, SpaceX, uh, which are both Elon Musk companies, but they have 5% of their company's balance sheet in, in Bitcoin. He's a big Bitcoin guy, as well as the Twitter owner, Jack Dorsey. Indirectly, people are buying Bitcoin just if they own Tesla shares. Mm. Correct. As well mm. as MicroStrategy, who was, uh, you were talking on leverage, uh, MicroStrategy, Michael, Michael Saylor, he actually leveraged his company, MicroStrategy, to buy as much Bitcoin as he possibly could. He's a huge Bitcoin believer. And it's so if you're indirectly, if you're in MicroStrategy, you're indirectly into Bitcoin as well. But just this year alone, 
Uh, you've seen multiple 20 to 30% drops, but when that ban happened in China, there was a drop of about 54%. And it took about four months, and now it's finally recovering. It's getting pretty close to its all-time highs, but a 54% drop is is huge. Like that's not a you have to have the stomach for something like that and, re- and make sure that if you're putting money in there, you're, you're prepared to lose it all because what about ex- governments and, and how do they feel about this and, and banking and such? Because again, at the end of the day, it's about stability and it being there when you need it. Yeah. So that's a good question. El Salvador being the first ones to make it legal tender. Now there's other countries such as Brazil. See, now that doesn't make me feel very confident. (laughs) (laughs) But the reason why the U S and Canada don't like is because they want control over what you're doing, right? They want, they don't, they don't want you to have uh, cut the middleman out because they love to have that in there. No, it makes sense. But they're, they're on the verge of making a ETFs. So it will be a little bit more accessible. There's three that apparently might be approved this year. But the way uh, corporations are getting into it are through grayscale, grayscale trusts, which they're a trust that just holds a ton of Bitcoin and you can invest it just like the stock market. It's a, it's a lot more liquid instead of holding a Bitcoin and getting onto Coinbase or exchanges such as that. Wow, that is fascinating. Planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net or call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net or call them at IG Private Wealth Management, 905-972-7420. We're talking about holistic financial planning. Do we get out the candles and kimonos here, Don? What are we talking about? <laughs> well, how do you follow Bitcoin or cryptos yeah. or, or El Salvador and using volcanoes yeah. to mine your currency? Like this is just boring stuff that I'm going to be talking about here. Um, <laughs> boring is good though. Uh, going out on those skinny branches, as Mitch said, if you, if you have some money that you can afford to lose, then maybe that's an option. But there's a lot of other places you can lose money too. And, uh, and, and, and cryptos is, is certainly one of them. Could you imagine if you had a, you know, you, you put a position of 100,000 and literally within a week it was worth like 46,000? You know That's- what I think we should do a show on is you and Mitch debating Bitcoin because I have a feeling you have different opinions on this. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, uh, I think we're showing our age here, both of us, Scott. Yeah, perhaps one, so. a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but holistic financial planning, you know, it, we, we talk about this all the time. And, and really, it's, it's really taking the, the 10,000 foot view of your overall situation. And I still, every day, I'm talking to clients or, or potential clients, and they're talking about what their financial planner is recommending. It's always about investments. It ha- they haven't taken these steps such as tax planning. And uh, one I did find, I guess it was kind of interesting in the past week was, I guess it's a tax strategy. They were recommending leverage, which we just talked about earlier, boring to invest for somebody that was in their mid seventies. And the older you have, 
I guess your end date is getting shorter. Okay. Mm -hmm. And therefore leverage should really be looked upon as at least a 10 year strategy because of the ups and downs of the stock market. And if you're 74, you pretty much say, okay, I got to make this work till 84. And is it worth the risk at that age to do this? So I often question, okay, what's the motive of this financial advisor? Was it really so that this person can borrow a lot of money at age 74 and take their money out of the RIF and have an offsetting tax deduction? You know, I'd have to debate that. So we'll be, and we will be chatting about this sometime in the near future, but that's all about investment still. And when you look at tax planning, you want to look at, okay, as Mitch mentioned, different tax brackets. We're almost lost. When we have an appointment, if you do not, if you are bringing, you going to a financial advisor and you are not bringing your tax return, I would question it right there if he's a holistic financial planner or if he's simply an investment advisor. I have a very different, in fact, it's, I'm almost feel like I, I, I'm missing my weapons if I don't have their tax return. You definitely mm -hmm. need to see that. Um, questions such as, uh, should you incorporate or should you not? The benefits of both. Okay, that's a tax planning strategy. I know your accountant would often recommend this. But, you know, there's a lot of advantages of incorporating, particularly if you don't need the money. Okay, but if you're simply paying it into the corporation, and then flowing it right through it into your, into your pocketbook, well, you're not going to get much advantage in getting a corporation there. There is limited liability. So if you're in a, if you're in a business that you could be uh, sued, um, that's a great reason to be incorporated. But if you're not, then uh, you better be leaving a lot of money within the corporation to make it worth your while. Capital gain planning. Should you take all the capital gains now? Or should you spread it over many years? Old age security clawback as uh, RSPs versus TFSAs. That's all, those are all tax planning questions. And these are all questions you should be talking to your financial planner about. Or are they simply going over, here's your performance over the last year? And that's really going back to investment planning. Estate planning, uh, that's the next step. Okay, and unfortunately, you know, we, you know, the part of the estate planning, of course, is the eventual death of somebody. And, you know, I had a client recently call me up and say, Don, we need to come over. My husband has uh, got stage four cancer. We went over all the estate planning one more time, made a couple extra changes, actually, because things changed in their life. And I uh, looked at the will, look at beneficiaries, looked at life insurance, gone through everything and uh, what their wishes were to make sure it did match the estate plan. And uh, unfortunately, that person did pass away uh, within a week. But at least it was peace of mind knowing that this was all looked after before that person passed away. And that's, Man, that must be difficult for you. You know, it was. And I know when I'm shaking his hand, um, it would be the last time. Um, yeah, I've had to have yeah. these appointments many times over the 36 yeah. and a half years. Yeah. And yeah, they don't get easier. Yeah, um, but yeah. he was very good with it. And he knew his end date. It was, mm -hmm. was near. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but and, and if he, that doesn't, if that doesn't give you the security and peace of mind of having a financial planner, what does? Uh, you could, yeah, absolutely. Scott, thank you. Um, they couldn't appreciate it more. Mm -hmm. I walked out of there. They were, you know, extremely happy with the the results. They sent me all the documentation that they were going to do in the next week. They got everything done. It was almost like a checklist mm -hmm. um, going in. And sure enough, uh, they got every um, check, or every box checked. And then he passed away a few days after that. Mm -hmm. So um, again, that's peace of mind. And it's such a good feeling because you've worked all your life for a certain result. 
And at the end of the day, you don't get to keep this result. Yeah. At the end of the day, you get to, you, you're for, fortunately, if you have anything, you get to pass that on to your, your kids or your loved ones, your spouse, et cetera. And you get to pick. And that's, a, that's extremely important. And along that goes with this holistic plan would be insurance. Insurance planning is extremely important. Corporate life insurance, whether you have a cottage, you want to pass that on to the kids. Insurance might be a, a route to go. None of this happens about building up net worth without cash flow planning. And this is while you're young, in Mitch's case, trying to build up for your first house to creating your money for retirement. And then, of course, going through the phase of retirement and making sure you never run out of money. So cash flow planning is extremely important. And that's just going through what's coming in, what's going out. Those are the five main keys of a holistic financial plan. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox have been here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. DonFox.net to find out more, or you can call them at IG Private Wealth Management, 905-972-7420. Another great show, guys. Thanks so much. Have a great week. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.